Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Andrea Horvath joins us in our series of Hamilton mayoral candidate town halls. The fall wave of COVID-19 is underway in Niagara. We have a warning for tens of thousands of women here in Ontario. What's next for Hockey Canada? And we discuss Canada's best roadside attractions. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Andrea uh, had, had a job to do when she was leaving of the official opposition. Uh, now she has a job to do in, in uh, becoming, if she does become, uh, the, the mayor of Hamilton. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin waking you up on a soggy Thursday morning. That was the voice of Premier Doug Ford last week, voicing confidence that he can work with Andrea Horvath if she is elected to be Hamilton's next mayor on October 24th. And to that end, we are continuing our mayoral candidate town halls on Good Morning Hamilton, this time with Andrea Horvath. Andrea, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Good morning. It's great to be with you this morning. What is, and I'll just remind our listeners, it's 7.50 this morning. You'll have a chance to call in and ask Andrea a question. But what is the number one issue that you're hearing when you're knocking on doors, when you're speaking with local residents? What is that burning issue in Hamilton? You know, Rick, what I'm hearing from people everywhere I go, all kinds of different people, is a real concern about the cost of housing in Hamilton. And and that comes from, you know, parents who are worried that their uh, adult children are never going to be able to fulfill their dream of buying a home, uh, to people who are really concerned about the folks that are houseless in Hamilton uh, and unable to find shelter, especially with the winter uh, that's uh, upcoming and everything in between, uh, affordable rental, uh, affordable social housing for low-income folks. It, It runs the gamut and everybody's talking about it. So what is the plan? How do we correct this issue? Well, there's a number of opportunities. Uh, Certainly, we have a a, a bunch of folks in the private sector that are uh, looking to build within the urban boundary. Uh, It's taking a long time for their processes to go through, so we need to clean that up uh, and get some of that private market housing built uh, because the supply uh, will start to impact the prices. Uh, The other reality is there are some 3,000 units ready to go uh, by a, a collective of of uh, not-for-profit housing providers, uh, they smartly have gotten together to uh, to coalesce around the uh, the need to push the city to be a part of the solution. Uh, and what I'm hearing from them is they need some support from the city to unlock some of the other federal and provincial uh, programs to to help get those projects funded. That's three thousand units that will help. Uh, we also know that there are needs for wraparound services for supports for people with mental health and addictions who are on the streets uh, and we need to work on that and urge the other orders of government uh, to help us with those situations people's incomes are very very low and everything is very very expensive uh, with folks that are are living uh, you know, with, uh, with with some of the most uh, vulnerable situations. And we need to acknowledge that uh, and find ways to partner with the other orders of government uh, to begin to provide the services necessary. You mentioned in uh, the course of building uh, new homes, new affordable homes, you use the words within the urban boundary. Are you committed to filling in the spaces in town before we stretch our city limits? Oh, absolutely. And unlike other candidates, I've always felt that way and have never wavered. Uh, that this, the urban boundary, um, first of all, I'm very proud of the Hamiltonians that took this on and, uh, and really pushed hard to make sure we, we maintained the existing urban boundary. It was the right thing to do. We don't want to eat into farmland. Uh, we don't want to uh, create a situation where we're, we're building 
you know, sprawling communities uh, with new infrastructure when our current infrastructure is underutilized. It's expensive. We can't afford it. And environmentally, it's the wrong thing to do. So absolutely, I've always felt that way. One of the things that, that I'm concerned about, though, is the pressure to, you know, to expand the urban boundary comes from the fact that we can't get applications and, and projects up and running in the in the urban boundary so so we need to clear those log jams get that housing built and that'll take some of the pressure off but urban boundary expansion is not uh something that i agree with some of that pressure is coming from the provincial government and you know we played a clip off the top of this segment from premier doug ford your relationship with mr ford some say that could be a stumbling block going forward what do you say to that well i would say to the folks who say that uh, that uh, they need to kind of fess up as to where that came from. Uh, I suspect they're just making it up and it appears that way. Certainly Mr. Ford or the, the premier of our province has from day one, when I announced I was going to seek the uh, uh, the mayor's position, uh, wished me luck and said he knows that every day I'm going to get up and, and fight for Hamilton. And he's right because he's seen me do it. Uh, and of course, his comments the other day just reinforced that, as do the comments of our local conservative MPPs, uh, Donna Skelly uh, and Minister Lumsden. They've all said very clearly that uh, that they know that I can do the job and uh, that they'll be able to work with me. Also, I have in my plan uh, a, a basically a, a leadership table, a team Hamilton table, where I would have the MPPs of all stripes, as well as school board trustees, uh, sitting at a mayor's table to uh, to make sure that we're coordinated, that we're working together in every possible way possible, as well as federal MPs, by the way, uh, to, to make sure that we're moving forward the things that will help uh, Hamiltonians, uh, you know, reach our potential uh, and, and fix the problems that we have. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Andrea Horvath, Hamilton mayoral candidate. Other candidates in the race for your vote on October 24th are Bob Bertina, Ejaz Butt, Jim Davis, Paul Frum, Solomon Equiu, Hermes Ishawa, uh, Keenan Loomis, and Michael Pattison. We've got a couple more minutes before we get to our next segment. And a reminder to our listeners, you can call in with a question for Andrea at 750 star 9900 got about 90 seconds left in this segment i want to ask you this because provincial and federal politics is so partisan and divisive at times could your ties with the ndp keep some potential voters away from marking an x beside your name that's not what i've heard on the uh, on the doorsteps uh, that people are definitely acknowledging the fact that uh, that this position, the position of mayor, really does require experience. Uh, and they understand that uh, my former role gave me a lot of that experience. So I have folks who are conservative, who are liberal, who are New Democrats, who have never affiliated with a party before, which in fact is the majority of people uh, don't actually consider themselves a partisan person. Uh, all folks uh, of, of all of those stripes and none are coming aboard. It's been fantastic. The campaign's going very, very well. Uh, and I'm, I'm very excited by how excited the people of Hamilton are. Advanced polls will um, resume. They've already begun. They did so last weekend. They'll resume tomorrow and on Saturday. Of course, Election Day is October 24th. CHML will be broadcasting live at Hamilton City Hall on that night. Andrea, we'll get you to hold on for a couple minutes and we'll bring you back in five minutes' time as we'll open up the phones at 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your mobile device. If you want to ask candidate Horvath a question in relation to the campaign, a big issue that is really burning with you star 9900 on your cell 905-645-3221 we'll take your calls in five minutes time 
You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It's uh, the latest in our Hamilton mayoral candidate town halls, and today we're pleased to be joined by candidate Andrea Horvath. Do you have a question for Ms. Horvath? Now is the time to call 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell phone. Got a couple of callers already on the line, Ryan and Annette. We'll start with Annette. Annette, you have a question about um, affordable housing. Hello, Annette. Hi. Um, well, I'm a mother of four grown children, and I'm worried about my kids won't be able to raise their families in Hamilton where I raised them. So how are we going to make sure that kids in their 20s and young families can afford to live here in Hamilton? Great question. Thanks, Annette. Andrea? Well, thanks, Annette, for the question. And it's something that's on the mind of a lot of parents and young people. And it's it's heartbreaking to watch as young people give up their dreams to ever be able to live in the neighborhoods they grew up in or or buy a home in the town that they love. Uh, so we've we've worked really hard to come up with some solutions that will help us do a number of things. Uh, one is create more of what we call uh, the missing middle housing. And so that housing is housing that's more affordable. We used to refer to it as starter homes, for example. Uh, so the duplexes and, and triplexes, the semis, uh, the the, uh, the townhouses, we need more of those entry type of homes uh, in Hamilton to help people get their foot in the door. Uh, and that's a, a big part of our plan. We also need uh, affordable rental housing. One of the things that young people are, are up against is the fact that they can't even save for a down payment because the cost of rents is so high. Uh, and so we need to bring more purpose-built rental stock into the market to help uh, manage those costs, bring those costs down. Uh, and of course, more housing overall uh, will will help us to, uh, uh, to, to deal with the costs. The one thing though that I think we all have to be really um, firm about is that all of the new housing that's going to be built in Hamilton uh, needs to be done through uh, ensuring that the processes are cleaned up at City Hall and, and things get done quicker, uh, but also that we maintain that firm urban boundary uh, because we 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 have to build the housing absolutely, uh, but we we can't we have to protect our farmland and we we can't encroach into uh, uh, into the green belt onto farmland into environmentally sensitive sensitive areas. That's our obligation in terms of the climate crisis, which young people are also very concerned about. Yeah, great question, Annette. It's it's certainly on the minds of many parents out there wondering how their kids are going to be able to afford a home where most adults now uh, are struggling to do so. we got a question from Ryan. Ryan, welcome to Good Morning Hamilton. What's your question? Hi, I, um, I'm relatively new to the city of Hamilton. Um, really love this city a lot. And, you know, it's a diverse city with, with people from uh, all backgrounds that, that live here, uh, work here. And um, just last week, we saw uh, the, uh, a sign of a, of a candidate, a person of color, uh, defaced with, uh, with hate. So I guess my question to Andrea is, um, how do we ensure uh, this is a safe city for all? And what does anti-racism work look like? Well, Ryan, uh, thank you so much for the question. And it was, uh, it was awful uh, to see Kojo Dempsey's sign on the mountain at Upper Paradise and Mohawk defaced. Uh, but you're right. We do see a lot of hate in Hamilton. Uh, and and it's it's not it's not been dealt with at all, and that is a problem. I, I can remember back in the '90s, before I was even elected, working with uh, an organization called the Community Coalition Against Racism. I was the co-chair of that organization because we were fighting hate back then. We see anti-Semitism, we see anti-Black racism, we see Islamophobia. Every person in Hamilton deserves to be able to live here and thrive here and succeed here, uh, regardless 
of, uh, of the color of their skin, of their faith, of where they, uh, where they may have initially called home, uh, when they came to our city. So there are things that, that, that we can do. One of the most important ones, ones is to speak out publicly against these things immediately when they happen uh, and make sure that we are investigating uh, hate crimes when, when, uh, when they're being uh, reported. Uh, those are, are two really important pieces. It takes people who are, uh, who are leaders, who are comfortable with, with uh, pushing back against this hate, who are prepared to speak out against this hate, uh, and who are able to acknowledge and recognize it when it's happening. Certainly that's been my history, not only as a citizen of Hamilton, uh, but also as an elected person of Hamilton. I brought the Access and Equity Committee, uh, it, or rather um, office, into our city uh, when I was a city councillor, uh, which uh, sadly was, was uh, disbanded a, a couple of years ago. Uh, but there are things that we can do proactively, not only to push back against hate, but to show people how welcome they are and, and make sure that folks feel like uh, they're respected, welcomed, uh, and uh, and able to build a good life here. Good question, Ryan. That is uh, certainly an issue we want to snuff out in this community, that racism, that hate. We, there's no room for that here in Hamilton. Last one for you, Andrea. We've got about a minute. You're trying to become Hamilton's first female mayor. What would that mean to you, and what would it mean to the city? Well, I'm actually trying to become uh, Hamilton's mayor uh, because I believe I have the experience necessary to, to hit the 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 road running, like to hit, hit the ground running and really use that experience immediately to serve Hamiltonians. Uh, the fact that I'm a woman, I have to say, does bring some added uh, opportunity. I, I've, I'm somebody that was able to make sure that 50% of the women, or 50% of the people that were elected MPPs uh, to the Ontario NDP caucus were women uh, for 2014, 2018 as well as 60% in, in this last election. And it makes a difference. It makes a difference in terms of the, the tenor, in terms of the voice, in terms of the lived experience. Uh, women's voices are important in all orders of government, all levels of politics. I've been able to achieve that at a provincial level and I'm really looking forward uh, to making sure women are dialed in, uh, as well as men, as well as other people. Uh, but but we really do, uh, we, we need to have a mayor for all Hamiltonians. Uh, and I think my, uh, uh, my gender is something that will help us to make that happen. Last one, and uh, this is a call in from Don. Don has a question about rental properties. Go ahead, Don. I, I got a question for you. I've rented the same house for 15 years. Uh, last year, my landlord came up to me and said, "Your house is worth more rented out these days than it was when you know before COVID. So therefore, I want $500 more a month right now, or my kids are going to move in, or I'm going to renovate the house, and you won't be able to afford it anyway." So be prepared for your rent to go up again next year at the same amount. All right, so you're asking about renovictions. Andrea, your your comments towards renovictions in this town, which is happening at an alarming rate. It is happening at alar an alarming rate. And, and Don, I, I know that this is it's just devastating for you and your family. And it is so for so many other tenants in Hamilton and, and really across the province. There definitely needs to be uh, some rules. And we I fought personally for those rules to be put in place uh, at the provincial level for all Ontarians. Uh, and we know that that needs to happen uh, here in Hamilton as well. Renovations for, uh, uh, you know, by, by landlords who are not uh, on the up and up and who are who are using these 
these tools as an excuse to jack up rents is, is what's leading to part of the crisis in terms of affordability of rental housing uh, in our city. So absolutely, we need to tackle that. We need to urge rules at the provincial level. We need to prevent the demolition of, uh, of affordable rental stock here in here in Hamilton, because I know that's happening as well, uh, and and we need to realize that that housing is a right. You cannot you cannot build a life uh, without stable, affordable, uh, accessible housing that meets your needs and that meets the needs of your families. Uh, this is housing is something that I've always fought for since again before I was even elected. I used to work in the not-for-profit housing sector and the co-op housing sector. Uh, built actually built when I was a city councillor affordable housing uh, in the downtown through uh, Hamilton's. Uh, uh, city housing Hamilton. So housing is a big important issue, which is why I raised it at the beginning. Rent evictions really do hurt people. They hurt families and they create an unaffordable environment uh, for renters. Andres, thanks for uh, spending some time with us. Best of luck on Election Day. Thanks so much, Rick. Take care. That is Hamilton mayoral candidate Andrea Horvath. October 24th is voting day. Advance polls continue tomorrow and Saturday as well. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Niagara Region's acting chief medical officer of health out with a warning today uh, urging you to get your COVID-19 booster shot if you haven't done so already. And also with a suggestion to wear masks indoors once again. All of this comes as the fall wave is underway in Niagara. Dr. Mustafa Hirti is the Acting Medical Officer of Health for Niagara Region and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Hirti, welcome back to the show. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm doing well. What is the COVID situation like right now in Niagara? Yeah, so, you know, I think we're seeing signs that COVID-19 is about to start to go up again. We're looking at wastewater data. We're seeing that we're seeing more evidence of COVID-19, which implies more people are infected with it and they're excreting it when they flush down their human waste. We're seeing the percent of people who are getting tested for COVID-19. More of them are coming back as positive. That's something called percent positivity, which we sometimes hear about. And then even when we look at the number of outbreaks of COVID-19 we have, the number of people being hospitalized for COVID-19 we have, we can see there's very clear increases in both of those. And that's all giving me a reason to believe that COVID-19 is on its way back up again. When I look over to the United States and the United Kingdom, it's even more striking there that they have their waves underway right now. And as you said, the thing we should do to make sure we are ready for this is go out, make sure we've got those booster doses pretty soon so we have that protection. And, of course, do the other things we can do to limit our risk, which I think includes wearing masks indoors once again. Is there anything in particular that's driving this new wave here? We don't know for sure what's happening here in Canada yet. It's a little bit too early. But what we're seeing in the United States and in Europe is that some of the new variants that have emerged over the last several months are what are driving that, particularly this variant called BQ1.1. What's sneaky about this VQ 1.1 is that this virus keeps evolving to try and get around some of the things that we're doing to protect ourselves from it. Particularly, it's finding ways so that it gets around a little bit of immunity from past infections or from the vaccine. So the vaccine still gives very good protection. It's just maybe not as good as it was before because it's bearing has found a way around it. And likewise, it's finding a way around some of the treatments that we're developing to fight this uh, virus. So, Dr. Hirji, does it matter whether or not we get the, you know, for, for lack of a better term, the regular booster, or should we go with this Omicron uh, targeted uh, booster shot? Yeah, it, we definitely you want to go for one of the Omicron targeted booster shots, the so-called bivalent booster shots. 
We've had those out for a little over a month now. So actually, if you go to a vaccine clinic, that's probably by default what they're going to be offering you anyway. Definitely the evidence shows that it gives you better protection. I wouldn't say it's massively better protection, but it gives you a little bit. And if you're going to get that booster shot, you absolutely want to get the best protection possible. But if you're someone who, for whatever reason, got the regular vaccine, still a great choice. You've done what you need to do to make sure you're better protected this fall. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Dr. Mustafa Hirji, Acting Medical Officer of Health with Niagara Region, urging you to get your booster shot as the latest wave of COVID-19 is underway. Critics, and you've probably heard a lot of them, will say, you know, we're supposed to be living with the virus now. This is, you know, this is just like the flu. What's your response to that? Yeah, you know, we saw a wave of infections over the summer, which I don't think is what we see with influenza. August of 2022, so just a couple months ago, was actually the most deadly month we've had here in Niagara with COVID-19 since February of 2021. So back before we were actually having a lot of people vaccinated. You know, I think it's true that this virus is not as deadly or not as dangerous for anymore. And that's thanks to people going out and getting vaccinated. So we have a lot of protection built up. But just like flu, every year that virus evolves and we need to get a booster shot to make sure that we're a little bit better protected against it. And I think the same is true with COVID-19. We need to still be doing things to make sure we're better protected against this virus, which means getting our booster shot. Everybody aged 12 and up is recommended to get a booster shot. No matter how many previous doses you might have had, you can be eligible for one more booster shot this fall. And of course, just like flu, we know it goes up in the fall and winter period. We saw that actually with COVID-19 the last two years. So I'm expecting that's going to happen again. And so why sit and let ourselves get sick from it or possibly get that infection and pass it on to a more vulnerable member of our family or a vulnerable loved one who doesn't live with us? Let's make sure we have that additional protection. We're taking steps to protect everybody around us. There are no longer mask mandates in most public settings in this province, in this country, really. Should we be putting the masks on again indoors? I absolutely do think so. You know, I think masking should be something that, you know, we learned over the course of the pandemic really makes a difference in terms of stopping the spread of COVID-19. But actually, we just saw almost no influenza over the last two years. And that's partly because we were wearing masks, which stopped the spread of influenza as well. And I think every year we should be looking that when the virus comes back and it's, you know, on a surge, this is a time for us to go back, wear a mask for a few weeks to make sure that we're a little better protected through that wave. And then once the wave is over, we can go back to, you know, choosing if we think it's right for us or not. What? I, you know, the province isn't going to mandate it likely. So I think it's really up to us to take it upon ourselves to make that choice. i got about 90 seconds. I want to ask you about this because we're, you know, living with the virus now. There might be a certain sense of complacency that has set in in terms of, you know, trying to protect ourselves against this virus. Does that concern you at all? It absolutely does concern me. I think, you know, especially over the last, seven, eight months, I think we have not worried as much about the virus. And so I think people might not be thinking as much about it. As I mentioned, just two months ago, we had the most deadly month that we've had in about a year and a half. And I do worry that this fall, we're going to see COVID-19 basically come back and hit us hard due to our complacency. But if we, you know, get the vaccine boosters, we start wearing the masks again, we make sure we stay home when we're sick. I think we can actually outsmart the virus and it won't get quite as big a hit on us as we think it's going to. Dr. Hirji, it's an important message and I thank you for sharing it on our show today. 
Yeah, very welcome. That's Dr. Mustafa Hirji, the Acting Medical Officer of Health in Niagara Region, urging you to get your booster shot and start wearing a mask in indoor settings. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, interesting analysis done by the Ontario Medical Association. It's found that there were 400,000 fewer mammograms during the pandemic than forecasted. And while screenings have returned to normal, there may be some undiagnosed cases in this province. Dr. Rose Zacharias is the president of the Ontario Medical Association and returns for another interview here on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Zacharias, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. I would imagine this is a massive impact on breast cancer screening in that many women, these 400,000 or maybe more, maybe a little bit less at this point, uh, are under the gun to get in for a screening. Absolutely. I mean, we know that breast cancer is the number one cancer affecting women in Canada. And we also know that one in eight Canadian women can expect to be diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetime. And so early detection is so crucial. And mammograms are the best method for detecting breast cancer early. And while we were dealing with the crisis of COVID, we know now, looking back, that over 400,000 mammograms did not happen and so it does mean that there are women that um, will have breast cancers that are further advanced um, than than should be and so it's it's very very concerning there's really a dual impact obviously for the woman and for the healthcare system which at this point is struggling with waiting lists and you know uh, burnouts this is a this looks like a lose-lose situation at this point well, our healthcare system is in crisis. You know, we dealt with a global pandemic. It's going on nearly three years now where we were dealing with a crisis of COVID. And so many cancer screenings were missed and many surgeries have been delayed. And, and yet we have doctor and nursing shortages and we have, um, you know, emergency departments that are overwhelmed. But getting back to breast cancer, we know that Um, survival rates are so much better when breast cancer is caught early. And so we need to be catching up on that backlog and uh, and getting women in for their screening. And then when these cancers have been diagnosed, getting these women to have their surgeries. Should many or, or some of these women expect some kind of wait, given how many of them are out there? So what we know is that um, when women are meeting with their family doctors, they, um, first of all, need to be very self-aware. Have they noticed a lump or a change in their skin um, that would indicate a breast cancer? Um, and, And also, if they're 50 years old in Ontario, every two years is what's recommended to get a mammogram. And so just really focusing on that front end of, uh, of where women might be at. Um, right now, we're, we're about back to screening at the, the pre-pandemic level. But what is really concerning is the state that we find ourselves in with, uh, with less of the mammograms, like to the tune of 400,000 less mammograms that have been done uh, as a result of dealing with COVID. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's very concerning to know that some cancers are more advanced now and, uh, and, and yet we're still dealing with, uh, with, um, with hospital crises.
The key is obviously uh, investigating these incidents early uh, because early detection means you can tackle it at, at a much earlier stage uh, in the cancer. In terms of uh, pre-pandemic to today, are we making some progress on the statistics when it comes to catching these cancers early? And so it's really good to focus on those, uh, as you mentioned, the survival rates being so much better when breast cancer is caught early. Um, because it's a message I really want to get out. When breast cancer is diagnosed at stage zero or stage one, cancers are staged between zero and four. So in that early stage of zero or one, the five-year survival rate is 98%. I mean, I've worked uh, in the emergency department, actually, as a physician for 20 years, and I've seen women come through at various stages initially um, finding that lump and then later on, um, you know, recovering from their surgery. And, and I, I just know of women who, who will show up and say, you know, I had breast cancer 10 years ago. I had breast cancer five years ago. I had breast cancer 20 years ago. It really is not the life sentence that, um, that cancer often feels like. Um, and so early detection there is so key because when that cancer advances to the stage four where cancer spread to other parts of the body, that five-year survival rate drops down to mid-30%. And so early detection, once again, is really what I want to stress and is so key. Got a couple more minutes with Dr. Rose Zacharias, the president of the Ontario Medical Association, as we talk about um, many fewer mammograms in this province during the pandemic. You spoke about uh, just now self-detection, self-awareness, those those self-checkups. When should that start? And is that a, is that a weekly thing? Is it a monthly thing? How should you go about doing so? So traditionally, we talked about the regular breast self-exam, um, but that's not so much where we're emphasizing now. We're mostly saying for women to be very breast self-aware. So to be aware of changes at, uh, at your breast. Is there a lump that was not there before at your breast or underneath your arms? Um, in your armpits, is there a lump there? Is there some skin changes, some thickening of the skin or dimpling of the skin or um, any discharge that is new or different, all of those signs would be concerning. Um, once those signs show up, it means cancer's further advanced. We want to find these cancers when they can only be picked up on that mammogram. And, uh, and so, yes, um, I'm really wanting to get the message out for women to, to connect with their family doctor and nurse practitioner, to get in for their mammograms, and also just to be very aware of your own body and uh, and what's changing and new or different, because that's what you need to get into your family doctor to talk about. It's an important message, and we're glad to share it with our listeners. Dr. Zacharias, thank you for your time today. Absolutely. It's good to be here. That is Dr. Rose Zacharias, president of the Ontario Medical Association. Yes, check up with your doctor, call, make an appointment, uh, and, and uh, you know, be self-aware as well is an important message as well. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, it was certainly a tumultuous week on Parliament Hill and across this nation for hockey fans, young and old, if they've been following Hockey Canada's ups and downs and a lot more downs these days than ups, that's for sure. They have been, I guess, somewhat feeling a little bit relieved at what happened the other day. Hockey Canada's president and CEO, as you probably already know, and the entire board of directors has resigned. 
The question is now, what does the embattled organization need to do to change the sports culture? Peter Julian is the NDP MP in New Westminster, Burnaby, B.C., and a member of the Standing Committee on Canadian Heritage, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Peter, good morning. How are you? Uh, good to be with you. What should Hockey Canada do to change its culture? I know it's a, it's a complex uh, question. It's a complex answer. What would be on your to-do list? Uh, well, I, I think the first step was taken with the, the mass uh, resignations that we've uh, seen over the last few days. But what Hockey Canada can do to start to rebuild public credibility, I think, first off, is showing transparency and accountability in its financial operations. Uh, what we've what we've seen over the past few months is a refusal for Hockey Canada to really talk about many of the expenses that the board and the executive leadership team undertook. And, and, and this, this is something that I think is disrespectful to hockey parents across the country who scrimp and save to make sure that their daughter or son can be enrolled in Hockey Canada programs. So transparency is, is key. Secondly, equally important, even more important, is safety in sports we, we've seen hockey canada and how they've handled uh serious uh, uh, horrific allegations of sexual violence and sexual abuse they've never put into place a, a zero tolerance policy so that we can we can really be assured that 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 uh, uh athletes uh, kids who are enrolled in their programs the general the the public uh, are safe at all times and and thirdly given how they've handled the with the secrecy many of these horrific allegations of sexual violence, uh, they need to release all of the victims from uh, non-disclosure agreements, which the victims have been obliged to sign in in some of these uh, deals that have been worked out. If the victims choose to speak out about their experiences, they should be permitted to without fear of legal repercussions. So those are three things that Hockey Canada can start to do right now that I think would indicate to the general public that the status quo is is no longer an option and Hockey Canada really wants to regain public trust and public credibility. You've been one of the MPs, especially on this committee, who have been quite vocal on this topic and you, you've called for an audit of Hockey Canada. Is that going to happen? Uh, yes, the government uh, accepted the NDP demand uh, last week that a comprehensive audit be done of Hockey Canada finances. And, and this is something that will hopefully un- uncover whether there are any more of these uh, secret funds that have been exposed over the last few months that are used for, for payouts for victims. Uh, and, and again, when, I, when we talk about many of the expenses that Hockey Canada has been engaged in that they haven't been transparent on, it's things like spending money, uh, a lot of money, apparently on a public relations firm, a navigator, to handle... Uh, their public relations, rather than investing in in a, in, in a zero tolerance policy to, to counter sexual violence and sexual abuse, uh, the board meetings uh, are rumored to cost uh, the dinners alone cost five thousand dollars for a dozen people. I, I think that doesn't <laughs> that just astounds everybody. Peter, do you get the sense that Canadians have lost faith in our minor hockey system? How much how much damage has this situation caused? Oh, it's done a lot of damage. We certainly saw that last week. Sponsors withdrawing from Hockey Canada. Uh, half of the provincial federations have said, including Ontario Hockey, have said they're not going to forward their money uh, to Hockey Canada. I mean, there, there's been a complete crisis in Hockey Canada that's been handled very poorly by by kind of a fortress mentality rather than dealing with the issues as they are. And so 
at, to, to, to my mind, that the crisis is acute. The resignations this week are a first step, but only a first step. Last one for you. We've got about a minute. Sport Minister Pascal St. Ange says she wants to analyze how Hockey Canada and other sports organizations operate. What do you want to see emerge from these types of reviews? Well, the, the federal government has been negligent when it comes to national sports organizations, whether we're talking about Hockey Canada or, or other sports that are also embroiled in, in crisis. The, uh, simply, the federal government simply has sent in checks, never provided the oversight, never provided the, the responsibility or the obligations of these organizations to crack down against sexual violence and sexual abuse. So the, the federal government now has to step up. I, I think if there's a... Uh, a, a, a little bit of uh, sunlight that comes from this uh, these, this horrific crisis. It's that the federal government is now being forced to finally take the steps that they should have taken decades ago to really provide oversight to all of the national sports organizations to force them, to oblige them to have a zero-tolerance strategy uh, and policy for, for sexual violence and sexual abuse and to be transparent and accountable uh, to, to the athletes and families that often... Uh, provide a lot of the funding for these organizations. If the federal government steps up and starts taking its responsibility seriously, then that may be uh, one positive outcome out of of what has been a horrific series of events over the last few months and the the last number of years. Mr. Julian, thank you for your time today and thank you for standing up for Canadians. Uh, Thank you for having me on the program today. That is Peter Julian, NDP MP, New Westminster, Burnaby, BC, and a member of the Standing Committee on Canadian Heritage. Uh, In short, a lot of lifting needs to be done at Hockey Canada and many other sports organizations across this country. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Recently, you will remember on Good Morning Hamilton that we heard about a giant Cheetos-inspired sculpture near Calgary, Alberta. PepsiCo, which owns Cheetos, put up this 17-foot-tall installation in the hamlet of Cheadle, Alberta. Picture a giant thumb, a giant index finger, a giant middle finger protruding out of the ground, holding a giant orange Cheeto. And, and on the fingertips of this sculpture is Cheetle, the so-called dust that comes off this cheesy, tasty treat. There's no words if anyone is going out of their way to visit Cheadle, Alberta, to snap a selfie with the sculpture. I'm sure a few people are. But it got me to thinking about the best roadside attractions. And and more importantly, do they really bring people to a city or to a destination? Sean Dyke is the CEO of Economic Developments Corporation in St. Thomas, Ontario, the home of Jumbo the Elephant Memorial. Uh, Sean, welcome to the show. How are you? Thanks very much. I'm doing great. Before we discuss the popularity of Jumbo, what do you make of this giant Cheadle sculpture in Alberta? Oh, I love it. I'm a big fan of uh, when communities or companies, for that matter, take take the initiative to do something different. And I, I think that's definitely something different for that community. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about Jumbo the Elephant in St. Thomas. For those who don't know about the story or haven't seen Jumbo, tell us about it. Sure. Jumbo, you've probably seen a number of different circus elephants throughout the years in different movies or, or what have you. Uh, Jumbo the elephant came to St. Thomas as, as part of the circus back in 1885 uh, and unfortunately was hit and killed by a train uh, here in St. Thomas. A hundred years later, in, in 1985, we had an artist commissioned to produce a, a life-size, a little bit larger-than-life sculpture of Jumbo here in St. Thomas. Do visitors stop in St. Thomas just to see Jumbo? 
you wouldn't believe how many people <laughs> come to St. Thomas to see Jumbo. And it's actually, I, I, and when I say you wouldn't believe it, we actually don't have any numbers to track how many people actually do, but it's become part of our significant railway history here in kind of a morbid way, uh, given that Jumbo was killed by our railway history. We've, we've actually turned around in, in the last year or two, turned that into nine murals. We have, now we have a public art trail focused on Jumbo. And it's, it, we get busloads of tourists coming off the highway. And St. Thomas isn't right on the highway, yet people still leave the highway on their bus. They park. They have their picture taken with Jumbo. They, they visit our elevated park, which is a new thing we have here. And it's, it's really been an amazing attraction for the nearly 40 years that it's been there. What do you think the draw is about Jumbo? Is it just the, the enormity? Is it just the story behind it? I think it's a mix. I, I think there's people that certainly like the story, and then there's others who really just want their picture taken with a big fake elephant. <laughs> there's uh, there's worse selfies, I'm sure. Uh, Sean Dyke is our yeah. guest. He's the CEO of uh, Economic Development Corporation in St. Thomas, Ontario, home of Jumbo the Elephant Memorial. We're talking about roadside attractions. Canada has a few notable roadside attractions. We have uh, the Big Nickel in Sudbury, Canada's largest loony in Echo Bay, Ontario. There's Mac the Moose in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. I was trying to figure out what Hamilton's roadside attraction would be. It's it's not that easy. I mean, some would say it's the steel mills or maybe it's the tie cats um, or the escarpment. You know, the one thing I think of would be the many waterfalls our city has to mind. Does anything jump out at you? Yeah, I'd, I'd imagine to be a giant statue of Tim Horton. Uh, <laughs> just from... But certainly, no, certainly the steel history there, there's got to be something unique that you could come up with. I, I think Hamilton could, could really do with it. And Hamilton has become a, a really strong arts community as well. So I think it'd be quite popular. There is a Tim Hortons um, statue outside the original Tim Hortons store, which, uh, you know, gets some people in, you know, snapping selfies and the like. But uh, certainly it, it, it's got to be one of those other um, uh, natural installations or, or maybe the tie cats or, or the steel mills that draw people to the city and, and get some oohs and ahs. Sean, really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us. And uh, next time we're around St. Thomas, we'll be sure to stop in to say hello to Jumbo. Please do. Love to have you. John Dyke is the CEO of the St. Thomas Economic Developments Corporation. And you, if you are heading towards the St. Thomas Way, why not stop in and check out Jumbo? It also got me to thinking about some of the most popular roadside attractions. Thinking these are roadside attractions. You're driving you know, beside a town or alongside a town and you, you spot something. And you know, nine times out of ten, it's a, it's a massive thing. It's a massive roadside attraction like the Big Nickel in Sudbury. You know, this thing is huge. It's built in the 60s. It weighs 64 million times more than an actual Canadian nickel, believe it or not. that That's a big nickel. And so, yeah, it got me to thinking about some of the, 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 the most famous or quirky or interesting roadside attractions. There is a giant Easter egg in Vegreville, Alberta. It's a Ukrainian Easter egg. This thing is monstrously big. Uh, and it's officially referred to as a pasenka. It serves as a symbol to honor the early Ukrainian settlements in that area of the country. Again, this is in Vegreville, Alberta. And it was dedicated, actually, to the 100-year anniversary of the RCMP in 1975. So this thing has been around for a long, long time. And you may have seen this if you're in and around uh, Port Carling, uh, Ontario. It has the world's largest photo mosaic. Uh, over 9,000 smaller pictures make up this mosaic. 
and they date all the way back to 1860. So that's pretty cool if you're in the Port Carling area. Have you seen the world's largest lobster? This roadside attraction is in Shediac, New Brunswick, and this thing is massive. It weighs 90 tons. That is a big lobster. You need a vat of butter if you were going to consume a lobster this size. Another one, I've never heard of this one, but it looks absolutely amazing. It's in Watson Lake, Yukon, and it's called the Signpost Forest. And it, uh, I guess it began in the 1940s when U.S. Army uh, engineers were building the Alaska Highway, and they started putting up posts to show, um, you know, the, the distance to their home. If they're from, I don't know, Ohio or California or Florida, whatever the case is. So all these signposts started appearing. Well, over the last, I don't know, 70 years now, people who have visited Watson Lake, Yukon, have brought a signpost from their hometown. There are nearly 80,000 signs, and this thing is still growing. This is a cool installation. So some of the uh, amazing and unique roadside attractions that this country has to offer. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.